following podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org. That's B-R-I-T-E-V-A.org or bts.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism. Well, welcome back, everybody. This is Larger for Life, a podcast journeying through the Westminster Larger Catechism. Um, one of your co-hosts, uh, Matt Adams, hailing from Dillon, South Carolina, the pastor at First Presbyterian Church here in town. And I'm joined by my other uh, host, Sean Morris. Good morning, Tennessee and elsewhere. And Derek Bright from Aliceville, Alabama. Derek, you want to say hello to our listeners? Hello to our listeners. Very good. Thank you. Nick Bullock, all the way from Stuttgart, Germany. Guten Tag, y'all. And Stephen Spinnenweber, uh, down from uh, DeSantis land, uh, Florida, Jacksonville. I do not know German. Very, very good. <laughs> Me either. And that's why you're not getting a PhD. Um, nonetheless... <laughs> We are on question 12 uh, this episode, journeying into the subject of God's decrees. And so question 12 asks, what are the decrees of God? The answer is, God's decrees are the wise, free, and holy acts of the counsel of his will, whereby from all eternity he hath for his own glory unchangeably foreordained whatsoever comes to pass in time especially concerning angels and men. So, Spin, I'm going to kick it right over to you. Uh, start us off on this question. Give us some thoughts, and then we'll dive into our conversation together. Well, I think in threes. I preach in twos, but when I come to the larger catechism, I think in threes. And so I kind of want to split up our time today and look at three things in question and answer 12 of the larger catechism. First, I want us to look at God's decrees, how are they described? The decrees of God, they are the wise, free, and holy acts of the counsel of his will. So I want us to spend time there. Then what's the aim? What is the goal of God's decrees? What do they all kind of channel and funnel to at the end of the day? And then we'll look finally at the unchangeably foreordained whatsoever comes to pass in time, the execution of the decrees of God? How is it that they come to pass? And what is God in control of? And what is he not in control of, we might say? Because that's a big question that many people in our congregations uh, may be wondering about. And so I think it's going to be good for us to to tackle all three of these, and especially that that third one, especially concerning angels and men. So Sean Morris, do you have any thoughts on God's decrees being wise, free, and holy acts of the counsel of his will? Oh, I mean, lots of thoughts. Um, where, to, where to even begin? How about I begin by making reference to Ephesians chapter 1. That, that is one of the common proof texts uh, that's given here in this particular catechism question here uh, for number 12. But also, it's relatively fresh on my mind uh, because I was preaching here in Oak Ridge through the letter to the Ephesians about a year ago, I think uh, we were still in we were in chapter one, and so uh, a number of these verses are still fresh, freshly in, in my heart and mind. And maybe this helps us 
set the tone for what the catechism question is getting at. Um, Ephesians 1, verse 4 and verse 11 in particular are what uh, Voss's commentary makes reference to uh, in for his proof text. So Ephesians 1, verse 4. Uh, let me start at verse 3, where Paul's beginning in that, that splendid uh, bursting of doxology. He just barely gets out of the greeting, and then he bursts into doxology. Ephesians 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. So that's verse 4. Skipping down to verse 11. In him, namely Christ, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So even in reading those two verses or hearing those two verses, I hope our listeners can see that uh, why these verses from Ephesians 1 go so naturally uh, with the, the theme and thrust of the doctrine here in question 12, in that God has decreed things to come to pass. Um, now, those verses in Ephesians are with particular reference to the, the redemption, to the salvation of God's people. But as we'll see as the conversation continues, uh, there's more that's uh, considered with and contained within the decrees of God than just the salvation of God's people. But at least for as a, as a kickoff point or a, a diving board, we see there from Ephesians that God has decreed, God has ordained, God has declared, where there's, there's a, a variety of synonyms that we might legitimately use. God has uh, sovereignly purposed that his people shall be redeemed. And he didn't do this yesterday. He didn't do this after we started to show some potential. Uh, he didn't do this after a trial period. He did this before the foundation of the world, before we were much less before we were the the twinkle in our mother's eye. Much it was before the before the cosmos was created. Before he hurled the worlds into being, God had determined. God had decreed that there would be a people He would save, and He foreordained it uh, to happen. So all things that flow out, all things that have taken place. Uh, I'm, again, I'm speaking narrowly of the redemption of God's people here, as I'm thinking of things. But uh, you know, when that sermon that you happened to listen to, Christian, that conversation, that encounter you had with another believer that pricked your conscience, that Bible study you just quote-unquote happened to attend, that devotional reading that you did that one day, uh, that sermon, that audio uh, live stream service that you tuned into, none of those things caught God off guard. In fact, he had pre-purposed to use those things to draw you to himself when you eventually came to faith in him. Uh, but so so salvation, I think that's one of the things that's easy for folks to get their minds around. Okay, God God decreed all these things to take place uh, in order to save me and save other fellow Christians so that they would all work together to make it happen. That's true, uh, but it's not limited to just the salvation of God's people as a catechism question helps us understand. It's not just salvific things that God decreed. It's all things. So maybe let's run with that for a few seconds as well. It's all things that he decreed. You know, that's a... Uh you know, a really good introduction spin and Sean, because I mean, that covers, you know, a wide range of conversational topics that we could uh, dig into. Um, specifically, Sean, you know, I'm living in deep South Bible belt and, you know, there's tent revivals going on all over the County. And, yep. and so, you know, it's, it's, it's really um, mind boggling when I begin to uh, 
talk about or even try to convince someone that God has, you know, foreordained uh, that preacher, that occurrence. It, it wasn't that he brought you to some sort of emotional state where you came down the aisle as they were singing the first verse of just as I am for the 32nd time, but it was actually in God's providence, uh, directly ordered, uh, for his own glory. Yes, your salvation, but for his own glory. Right. Um, and so when we think about all these things that God has decreed, all these things that God has foreordained, I think that, you know, we need to circle back to, to spin's outline just a little bit because, you know, these adjectives are so important in this conversation that he is in his decrees all wise. You know, we, we've talked about the characteristics, the attributes of God already on this show, but it's, it's fitting, isn't it, that the attributes of God will also be the adjectives and the characteristics and the attributes of his decrees. If our God is all wise, then his decrees are wise. If God is not bound by any sort of limitations, then the catechism says that his, uh, his decrees are free. Um, not subject to limitation. And and one of the things that Voss brings up in his commentary on the larger catechism, which I think is so helpful, is that he references Romans eleven thirty three, And he says, just because we can't understand God's plan or his purposes, and just uh, because we maybe not, maybe won't even discover that uh, the fullness of his plan um, on this side of heaven, you know, it is that God is free, um, that God is wise and God is holy in all things that he has foreordained and in, and in all the ways that he acts uh, for the preservation and the salvation and even the creation of the world uh, for his uh, for his people. And so, you know, I, I, I love these these attributes, these adjectives that the catechism is using over and over again, not only to talk about our God, but to talk about the way that he acts, even before the foundations of the world, um, as he hurled the worlds, Sean said, I, I, I love that little phrase. Uh, he was acting according to his most wise, free and holy will. It's a great question because it, well, for one thing, it's a profound doctrine and you know, we're all we're all pastors here, we're all ministers here. So we want to be sensitive to the fact that depending on someone's background, depending on someone's exposure to these things and their familiarity with it, this notion, if they're broaching it for the first time, could appear to be harsh or difficult to grasp or accept. But we hope really that as they grapple with it and understand it better, it will be a source of immense comfort and consolation. Because one of the things that this catechism question is getting at is that there are no accidents in God's universe. There are no things that have caught God off guard because all things have happened because he decreed it to be so. And I think that's part of what um, the the first couple of adjectives are, well, the first three, all three of them really are getting at is that everything that has happened has happened because God has willed it. There's nothing that has taken place. There's nothing that has occurred apart from God's decree your salvation the weather today uh that war that happened a hundred years ago uh that child that's going to be born in your congregation 37 years from now you name it all things that occur in this universe which god has created 
have occurred because of his decree. And there are, he was not compelled to do any of these things. Otherwise, he might not be God or he would not be God. Yes. If he was constrained or compelled by or mandated by an outside force, he wouldn't be free, as that second adjective says. They're free acts. He is entirely and wholly, W H O L L Y, wholly free to do what he wills. But then, you know, the, the, the catechism question anticipates folks. Uh, either objections or possible reservations of, well, what about these negative things that happened? Maybe God wasn't smart to do that. Maybe God wasn't good to do that. Well, no. Uh, the catechism is prepared with an answer, a biblical answer that says not only were his acts free, not only was he free to do so, his acts are wise. They're not foolish. They're not arbitrary. They're not ill-informed. They are wise acts, and neither are they bad, evil, or wicked or stupid, far be it, perish the thought. They are holy acts, and they are all entirely according to the counsel of his will. So some further thoughts there as, as this is certainly a this is certainly a doctrinal and theological foundation point that we uh that the Christian faith is built upon. But there's a there's a great deal of pastoral a sensitivity and sensibility that's being exercised here. So, and you know, there might be folks that are li listening to this podcast who are not entirely sold out to reform theology, or maybe they're new to reform theology. And again, we don't know pe folks' background. You know, folks might be coming out of bizarre corners where they dabbled with open theism and this notion that God didn't know or God was discovering things right along with us and finding them out in time. And this catechism question so helpfully puts the lie to that, that God is not caught off guard because everything that happens, happens because he ordained and decreed it to happen. You know, Sean, I just want to say something, um, maybe a little bluntly, but because um, I feel like sometimes I come from the bizarre corners. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, it's, you know, not only uh, my theological background, but, uh, you know, a lot of the doctrinal errors that exist within uh, nominal Christianity that prevails in the Deep South Bible Belt. Um, but you, you made a comment that I wanted to just to, to make one little comment. You made a comment that I want to make one little comment about. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the decrees of God seem harsh when we want to glorify ourselves. Yes. Um, when we want to make a decision, when we want to uh, will something to happen, when we think that we have uh, the better plan, when we... Uh, want to think that we're more wise than God. Um, that is when we think it's harsh. When we understand and, and fully embrace what the catechism says, that God and his decrees are what are most wise and most holy, and that he is executing things for his glory, um, we just need to sit back and, and enjoy that um, because as he glorifies himself through his actions and his decrees, we will reap the benefits of that. We will reap the blessings of that. Um, and, and those blessings will be far more than anything that we could comprehend. Right. Um, and so it's only harsh when we're in to self glorification, but when we circling back to the first catechism question, when we, and trust God to glorify himself, we will indeed enjoy him forever. Um, and so I just wanted to make that comment real quick. Uh, that's good. Uh, something I wanted to point out, and I think it'd be helpful for our listeners, uh, is, is really for us to confront a common misunderstanding regarding the decrees of God. I do think that uh, pretty commonly people will 
consider the omniscience of God, the all powerfulness of God, but they will want to reduce his decrees to a um, deistic passivity. Uh, that yeah. Yes, God knows things, but he's sitting back. He's he's on a chair. He's looking on, but he's not active. But one of the things that's pointed out by the Westminster divines is we're talking about the decrees of God, wise, free and holy, which are acts. They're acts. And someone may ask the question, well, how are they acts? Well, they're acts in, in the works of creation and providence, uh, most prolifically. And, you know, where do we get this? Well, we're getting this from the scriptures. We don't have a passive God in his direction of all things, nor in the execution of his plan. Uh, Sean read to us from Ephesians chapter one. And uh, the thing that he, he read was this uh, in verse 11, uh, that having all things been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to his will. These are the act, the activities of God in the midst of his creation and with his creatures. It's, it's not passive. It's not a thing just sat on a shelf. Uh, and, and that's important for us to look at because uh, if, if we take God and we reduce him to simply someone who knows things, uh, maybe he's the first cause or the prime mover only and simply, mm-hmm. uh, then what we do is we, we remove God from uh, a capacity to redemptively act for us and for our salvation. So um, it, it's, a, it's a gospel issue uh, when we take and try to reduce God or even uh, be too simple about the answer of the decrees of God. Um, we, we risk a whole lot. Uh, you know, one other thing I want to mention quickly, and I'll kick the ball over to one of the other guys, is when we talk about the wisdom of God's decrees, um, in one sense, we, we're echoing something that has been heard in um, in philosophical circles. Maybe uh, students of Leibniz would say, you know, this is the best of all possible circumstances or best of all possible realities, so on and so forth. But what's being said here and what the Bible testifies to about the wisdom of God in, in his decreeing all things, it's not just the best of all possible. I mean, that's a given. No, these things regard his wisdom, things that are right, things that are good, things that are uh, not just uh, better than what could have otherwise been. Uh, no, th- this is really and sincerely a reflection of his character. This is how he's acting within his creation. Uh, it, it's not just that that they are subjectively beneficial. Rather, they are positively um, manifestations of who he is in his creation and to his creatures. I just want to point that out. Uh, you know, we're not a philosophical system. We're a biblical piety. Uh, as Christians. So I want to kick that back to the other fellas. Uh, that's 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 a really good point, Nick. I mean, other than Derek, I don't know how many resident Aristotelian philosophers are out there that are listening to the podcast. But no, that is a great point that our God is not just the prime mover. He set the ball into motion as, as the great deity over the cosmos, and then whatever unfolds, unfolds. And, uh, you know, the, or even the worst, the, uh, the deist, uh, what's it, the, the, the deist clockmaker uh, notion where he winds up the clock, he sits he, and he lets it go and sits back and watches. Uh, no, that is not the God of Scripture. No, that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the Christian God. You know, Westminster confronts us again in chapter 5, in section 4, uh, where specifically the providence of God is, is described as, uh, let, let, me, let me read it to you, the almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence that it extends itself even to the first fall and all other sins of angels and men, and that not by a bare permission. Yes. 
that not by a bare permission. That is a significant claim. Uh, yes. and, and if you don't have a God that, uh, that is active meaningfully, um, then, then you can't really make any sense of the redemptive story of the Bible. You have a God that he's on a shelf. He, he's little more than, uh, than Dagon cast down uh, before the ark. Yeah, that's right. And we've sort of been dancing around it, uh, but we want, we'll want we have to address it at some point so we can sort of lean our way towards that potential question or that potential objection. So it's not bare permission. Things happen because God has decreed them to happen. God has made them happen. God has ordained them to happen. And it's not just good things. Unpleasant things happen because God has decreed them to happen. So does that mean that God is the author of sin? This is going to be surely an objection that folks are thinking of. And thankfully, this is an objection that the divines anticipated. Is God somehow responsible for or the doer of or the author of sin since he has ordained all things which come to pass? Since sin sounds like spin, run with it, spin. The, the, <laughs> answer, the answer is no. The answer is no. Uh, and, and after I've got two things, two illustrations that when somebody was trying to explain to me the decrees of God and how all the while he remains holy, wise, and free. And yet things are not falling out the way that I would like them to, or things are happening in the way that I would like them to. Yeah. Um, you know, there's an illustration I find helpful where my children, I have a six, four, two year old, and one is on the way. And when we're in the car going on a long road trip. My children sometimes want to know where we're going, how long until we get there, and they just have question after question after question. But what I've told them is that, kids, you know who's driving. You may not know everything or every detail that you want to know, but you know the character of the one who's driving the car, that dad loves you, that dad wants to get us safely to our destination, that I'm not going to waste any time. And so likewise, when we don't fully understand the decrees of God, when we don't have answers to all of our why questions, why are things happening to me the way that they are, we do know the answer to the who question. Yes. Who is it that holds all the worlds in his hand? It is a holy, wise, and free God whose counsel is wise, free, and holy. So that's first illustration. The other is going back to what Nick talked about. Because I think that most people do operate with a deistic understanding of God's providence with regard to the problem of evil. But this kind of sitting on his laurels, that bare permission, mm -hmm. uh, is, is where I think most people operate. But when I think of God's permitting something like the fall, which is news to a lot of people, right? They think, well, if God's not the author of sin, we all agree, then he can't be decreeing these things to come to pass. I mean, that, that has to be excluded due to the holiness of God. But the way that I've illustrated it to folks is that you could picture a dam or a levee, and somebody has their hand on that lever permitting water to flow through the dam. That's an active choice on the part of the one who is manning the lever, only permitting so much water as he has decided is going to go through that dam. And so it is God's, we might say, his relationship to evil. It's not a bare permission. He doesn't just wind it up, watch it, and then let it go. But rather, 
God is taking even evil providences in this life and tending them toward his glory, which we're going to talk about in a moment, which is the, the goal and the aim of God's decrees after all. Yeah. But it's also simultaneously working for our good, which is amazing that God kills those two birds with one stone. One stone of providence is for our good and for his glory. Romans 8, right? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. That is very good news. Yeah, it's. I suppose what we're saying is that we must affirm it, but we're not saying that it's always easy to wrap our minds around um, this notion of how God has ordained and decreed all things which come to pass, and yet is not the author of sin. But we must stand where the scripture stands. And, and Spen, you just cited a few verses. My mind all, often goes to the Joseph narrative uh, in the latter chapters of Genesis. What you intended for evil, God meant for good. Uh, one of the one of the, the words or phrases that I'm fond of when dealing with this doctrine of sin and how God relates to it is the language of subversion. Uh, that you know, wicked men intended it for wicked ends, and God, in His greatness and sovereignty and omnipotence and holiness, is able to take even that which is evil and polluted and sinful and awful. He's able to even take that thing and turn it on its head and subvert it for His good and holy purposes. Um, also, just the idea that the, the Westminster Divine authors anticipated this objection uh, or, or, or misunderstanding or confusion, if you will, because God's acts are holy. So if God can't be the author of sin because sin is sinful and sin is evil and sin is awful. And if God's acts are holy, well, that doesn't, <laughs> that's like oil and water. That can't combine sin and holiness. So God cannot somehow be the author of sin because sin is unholy and God's acts and his decrees are holy, wise, free, and holy as the divines get at. My mind runs to um, Acts chapter two on this. Um, you know, if you think about what was the most wicked act that's ever taken place? And you would say the crucifixion of the Lord of, of glory, right? And yeah. Acts chapter two has such a, um, you know, Peter just really nails it here. He says, you men of Israel hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain. So what are the two truths that Peter is holding there together? One truth is that Christ died according to the determinate plan and foreknowledge of God. And the second truth is he was put to death by hands of lawless men. Right. And so, um, there is no um, elimination of, you know, the um, the other trap that people might fall into, right? Someone to say, like we said earlier, that um, God has his hands off the wheel. It's very deistic or whatever. The other one that I've seen people fall into is they'll take the doctrine of predestination and God's sovereignty and decrees and they'll, teaches as if everyone is a robot, right? And we don't want to do that either. In fact, Francis Sturgeon said, no, it's it's actually the reform view that establishes free will um, more clearly than our opponents. And if you were to go to the Westminster Confession, um, the confession on chapter three is very good, but 
uh, one of the things it says in paragraph one is God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeable ordain whatsoever comes to pass. Okay. We've been talking about that yet. So as thereby, neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. And so it's not that God is this divine gunman, right? To And he's got a, back, a gun to your back and saying, you better sin, you better sin, right? Or you're, you know, you don't, perhaps you, you know, you don't want to sin and, and God is, is forcing you to sin, right? That's, that's not the case, okay? Um, but everything that happens is decreed by God and he is working all things out, right? All things, as I was mentioned earlier about spin. Uh, let me tell you, let me just give a, a brief illustration of how this, I saw this play out just recently. I was preaching at a prison and um, this guy that I'd never seen before, you know, when you go regularly, you, you tend to see the same people over and over. And that's both good and bad, rewarding and, and saddening. But um, this guy came up to me after I preached and I'll just be honest with you. It was not a very good sermon. I, I really, I was very tired, running on very little sleep and, and was kind of beating myself up over, um, as one does, right. You, you know, we all say we believe in the sovereignty of God and the work of the Holy spirit and the preaching of the word. And then we don't preach a great sermon and we immediately think, uh, Oh, I'm the one that bombed that, you know, and God yeah. can't use that. Yeah. And, uh, but anyways, I, I preached and afterwards this man came up to me and, uh, he was just, you could tell he's a broken down man. And he told me that, he said, you know, I, I don't know if anybody else heard your message today, but I heard it. And he said, I, I need to be saved. And I was actually taken back at first. And he said, you know, I've only been in this prison. I got transferred here. I've only been here a couple months. I've never come to chapel. And he said, I didn't plan on coming to chapel today, but I was just happened. I was happened to walk by and something said, you should go to chapel today. And he said, I did. And I, you know, I've, I've heard the gospel and I need to be saved. And, and I said, well, brother, I said, I don't know what you're in here for. And I don't care, you know, and I, but everything that has worked happened in your life up until this point has been God through his divine works of providence and his sovereign decree, bringing you here at this moment. I said, you got transferred here. Why? So that you might hear the gospel on this day and be saved. And um, I said, that's how serious God is about saving sinners, is that he would even bring you here at this moment so that you may hear and believe. And um, I said, think about if you were on the outside or if you were at that other prison, you know, maybe you wouldn't have heard the gospel. But God and his sovereignty has brought you here so that you may hear and believe. And it was it kind of something I've always believed just really just hit home with me, um, you know, in, in a uh, deeper way, just seeing sinners come to faith. Because, of course, because as Westminster Chapter 3 tells us, uh, liberty and contingency of second causes is not taken away, but rather established, um, we believe that even though God has decreed all things that come to pass, we are to be obedient and preach the gospel and to, to live uh, our best to the glory of God. And so um, 
you know, some people would say, well, if, if everything's decreed, if everything's predestined, then, then why preach the gospel? Well, because God uses secondary means in order to accomplish his purpose. And, Amen. you know, and, and so we we preach the gospel. As I, I told somebody recently, somebody asked me that question. Why preach the gospel if, if everything's decreed? And I said, I believe in preaching the gospel promiscuously. Yeah. And to everybody everywhere at all the time, whoever yeah. wants it. Right. And those who even don't want it. And, uh, and, you know, and and to preach the gospel promiscuously. Why? Because God saves sinners and he does it through the preaching of the gospel. Derek, I love that you drew the connection to the the crucifixion of Christ, because that that illustration just further reinforces uh, so much of what this catechism question is getting out of. God's sovereignty, his his utter control, his utter omnipotence of all things that, that God is able, I mean, to not only not be the author of sin, but to to take the conspiratorial schemes of wicked men and turn them on their head and put them into place and put them to work for his agenda, to turn these things, to turn the the scheming and the the cons and the conspiracy the conspiracy against his own son, the, the most wicked, heinous evil to slay his own son. And he's able to put that in his employ. He, he makes men's wickedness his errand boy in order to accomplish his own holy purpose and agenda. That's how sovereign and that's how almighty he is. And yet he is not tainted by sin. He is entirely holy in doing so. And it's just that's just a wonderful example of that. Well, there's the illustration, too, of Thomas Watson. And stop me if I've said this already, but... In the divine cordial or all things for good, which is his extended meditation on Romans 8.28, like I quoted, he talks about how God is like an apothecary or an old world pharmacist, where he takes all of these individual ingredients, which in and of themselves are poisonous and would kill you if ingested by themselves. But he is so wise and so capable that he takes all of these poisonous and evil providences and he will bring them together in such a way that they become medicinal to his creatures that's pretty amazing and that's not i think a lot of people might think of god's sovereignty as he looks down the corridors of time we've talked about this and then he mm -hmm. sees what will happen and then he kind of serendipitously he says "Ooh, you know um calculating error there on my part i'm gonna go back and kind of fashion things in such a way that that makes that okay no to, to Sean's point, this was according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. And I can't remember who said it, but you know, even Satan in Job 1 has to ask God for permission to tempt Job. And so somebody has famously said that he's God's Satan, right? That mm. he's even his errand boy and that there's nothing that the creature can do that can thwart God's plan when we believe in a sovereign god we don't believe that he's just sovereign over all the matters of lesser important importance but as this question says especially concerning angels and men god turns the king's heart like a river in his hand he directs it whichever way he wants it to go look at pharaoh look at nebuchadnezzar our god's sovereign over it all that's right and i know we need to get to the second and third points that, that's been helpfully outlined for us as we examine this question, but it's, it's just worth saying, not to be pedantic, but in case there's anyone listening in that may not have connected those dots already, that's why notions of things like luck or chance or fate or accidents, uh, 
these are foreign concepts to the biblical and Christian and Reformed worldview. Uh, there is no luck. There is no fate. There is no chance or accident because God has ordained all things which come to pass. They don't catch him off guard. Uh, they're not just accidental happenstances. No potlucks? You might have pot providences. You might have uh, four ordained fellowships. You're the worst. <laughs> you are the worst, sir. <laughs> just call them fellowship meals and move on. Yeah, call, uh, it a, call it a day. That's right. They, uh, you know, before we take off too far, one of the things that we ought to at least camp on for just a second is the freedom of God's decreeing. Yes, we, we we've skipped all around this, but one of the things that needs to be said, and and again, I think this is a common misunderstanding. Um, that the Lord decrees things with foresight. So he looks ahead, he sees what's going to happen, and then that directs him right. as if his plans are contingent mm -hmm. on the what-ifs of his creatures. Yeah. And what that does is it inverts the biblical cosmology. It, it places a different God on the throne, and it puts the Lord in service to his creatures rather than his creatures in service to him. But when we talk about the freedom of God, that relates directly to his sufficiency, his eternal sufficiency in himself. He needs nothing from any of his creatures or anything that they could even potentially do. Uh, it's simply according to the free, uh, good, wise, and holy uh, will of the Lord. Uh, and, and I just I put that out there to say to everybody uh, simply this. You didn't contribute to the Lord's action. No, 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 not at all. He directs it. It's all of grace. It's actually not even about how bad you would be. And so then he he chose to save you. It's not how good you would be. And so he chose to save you. No, it's about his simple uh, delight, his own heart, the things that were wise and holy to him. That's the only thing that directs him. He directs himself and his decreeing. So kick that over to you guys. I don't know how you want to follow up, but there you go. Well, I think it, you know, it actually takes us right into our kind of second point um, where we're thinking about the aims of his decree or the purpose, the goals of his decrees, because God takes his decrees that he's free to take. Uh, and like arrows, he aims them at the bullseye, right? And the bullseye is that he works. The purpose of his decrees are his glory, his own glory. And so, one of the things that I love about the way the catechism works, and this is brought out uh, by a number of different people, but not only does the larger catechism, not only does the larger catechism direct us to live for the bullseye of God's glory, but then it instructs us or teaches us that God also lives uh, and works for his glory. This is what, uh, Moorcraft says in his commentary, it says, since his glory is the most excellent of all motives and goals, the infinitely wise God cannot plan anything short of it as his own chief and highest end. Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever because God's chief and highest end is to glorify himself and enjoy himself forever. Um, and so these things work perfectly together. Um, as as the catechism lays out for us, yeah, it's it's worth it's just worth saying. And and the, I mean, the catechism has already said it. Of you know, why does God do all that He does? If we can if we can phrase it that way, 
Uh, is it for our happiness? Well, our everlasting good is certainly part of it, but the overarching or underpinning grand foundational agenda of why God does all the things that he does is for his own glory. Um, I, I can't remember exactly what movie it was. I think it might have been a goofy movie, that old uh, Disney movie, but a year or so ago, there was some Disney movie. I know Goofy was a character in it. Uh, he was talking with his son, Max, and Mac Max asked a question of basically, Dad, why do you do all these things for me? And and, and then Goofy gives the answer, well, I, I, it's all for your happiness, son. And my wife and my oldest were sitting in the room watching it, and they both went, Bleh! at the exact same time. I was so proud of them both that, that they had that reaction. <laughs> because that is not, I mean, because that, that, that's not what, what our God, that is not his overarching agenda in all things that come to pass. It's not just for the, for the aesthetic beauty of the world. It's not just for a, for a, a nice streamlined ecosystem. It's not even for our own happiness and betterment as if we would even know what that is a, better than God would. Uh, God does work all things for his people's everlasting good, but fundamentally and ultimately God works all things for his own glory. And the catechism just reminds us of that, that that's why God is up to all that he's up to. You mean to say that he doesn't exist for my happiness? Ultimately? Ultimately for your happiness. I mean, I know that you have a high opinion of yourself. I, I was just... told this, you know, <laughs> with a very popular song. Uh, it, this is, I, I will say that uh, one of the things I love about the Reformed faith is its theocentricity. Yeah. is I mean, there's a reason why our friend Derek Bright is studying the doctrine of God. Because if you live the Christian life in a purely utilitarian fashion, it really doesn't matter that God is simple. It really doesn't matter that he's unchangeable. So long as we get what we're after, uh, that's all that matters. But when we remember that we do not exist for ourselves, but we were made by God and for God to glorify and enjoy him forever, well, that just turns the entire Christian experience on its head, right? Because uh, I'm, I actually wrote this down, put on a post-it note, because even as a pastor, you know, there are some texts in scripture that are just like smelling salts to your soul. Like, why are we doing what we're doing, whether in the pulpit or in this podcast or in the counseling room? Second Corinthians 5.15, and he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. That is the beauty of theocentricity. That's the beauty of uh, everything that we're doing is ultimately for God's glory. And that's only fitting because there's no one and no thing more glorious than God. It's only fitting that he would be working for his own glory as he is the most glorious one in a category of one. And so then I think it lends itself naturally to that that third parameter uh, that, that you suggested to us, Spin. Um regarding how to analyze the, the catechism question of uh, God does ordain all things which come to pass. Uh, he decrees all things which come to pass for his own glory. And there's an especial attention. There's a special attention to uh, men and angels is the way that the, the catechism puts it here, that whatsoever comes to pass in time, especially concerning angels and men. So it's like we were speaking about a moment ago. It's not that God does things with zero attention or zero care uh, for man's welfare and happiness, but he does things ultimately for his own glory. But even as he's bringing things to pass for his own glory, he does so with a particular attention, a particular uh, sensitivity. I don't know if that's the right word, but a particular attention toward angels and men. Uh, the, these particular 
creatures of his creation, uh, man created in his own image, of course, uh, the crown jewels of his created order. So he brings all things which come to pass and he gives a special attention to that crown jewel in his created order as he's working out all things. Um, the language of foreordained gets employed here. And sometimes folks wonder, well, what? how does foreordained relate to this other word that we hear a lot, like predestined, which is a word we mentioned earlier from Ephesians chapter 1. And for my money, I rather like the, the nice little um, distinction that Voss gives in his commentary on the larger catechism, where he says, what's the difference between foreordination and predestination? He says, foreordination is a term for all God's decrees concerning anything, whatever that comes to pass in the created universe. So foreordaining anything which happens in the broad sphere of the cosmos of existence. Predestination, he says, concerns God's decrees regarding the eternal destiny of angels and men. So there's a more of a specificity, if you will, a subcategory of foreordination is predestination, particularly as it concerns God's decrees uh, regarding the eternal destiny of angels and men. So I thought that was a, a nice, quick uh, distinction and definition that Voss provides to help get our minds around uh, those two interrelated concepts. There's a note in the chat that somebody said they want to know how this relates to the doctrine of caramel or caramel. I don't know the answer to that. Do one of you guys know what in the world, what in the world is he talking about? Do we have, how does this relate to the doctrine of caramel? Well, Sean's just joking there a bit, but you know, one of the things that we ought to be confronting here is the, I think the widespread uh, pagan belief of karma. I mean, even amongst Christians, you'll hear uh, this sort of language. Uh, you know, you get what you put in, um, what goes around comes around, this sort of thing. Uh, and, and it's something that we need to really guard ourselves about, because when you talk about divine favor or really divine direction more broadly, okay, not just favor, but divine direction more broadly, uh, our view of God, the God of the Bible, does not give room uh, for that sort of tit-for-tat engagement, creator to the creature and creature to the creator. And, uh, and and really, you have to see this, you have to understand this, listeners, that whenever we're talking about, uh, whenever people say, oh, you know, I believe in karma, even good Christians, whenever they say something like this, what they're saying is they believe they can do something that actuates, occasions, or causes God to act in a specific way uh, up, down, left, or right. And this is essentially non-Christian. This yeah. is essentially contrary to our view of God and his character. Uh, and it's essentially, I would say, contrary to the doctrine of uh, sovereign grace, salvation. So we, we need to confront that in ourselves. We need to correct that even in the songs that we listen to, uh, Derek um, and others. <laughs> so... Uh. Haters going to hate, hate, hate. Um, so I, if I could, you know, I, I love what you said there uh, until the last sentence there. Nick. But um, this also, not only does it run contrary to the sovereign grace of God, but this all goes back again to the doctrine of God, because if you believe that um, something you do um, causes God to then react or... Um, you know, for something to change, right, um, then you are ultimately uh, running the risk of saying that God changes as a result of our actions. 
and thus making him not immutable nor impassable. So you're rendering him mutable. That is not good news. Um, you know, he doesn't, his decrees don't change because he doesn't change. Malachi 3 6, I, the Lord, um, you know, do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed as of Jacob. You know, why, why in God's decree were they not consumed? Because God doesn't change, right? And so if his actions and his working, it would be so contingent in the sense of um, whatever we do is a reaction, um, then we're really doing harm to the doctrine of God overall. And we need to avoid that. So don't, don't read what the standards say about the doctrine of God and then turn around and forget that when you get yeah. to his decrees and providence, uh, you don't want to. And I, in fact, I, I was reading a guy just yesterday um, a couple of guys actually who would claim to be reformed, but they were trying to, um, they were trying to posit a new way to think about God's decree and acting in the world that rendered him mutable. And so they'd say, well, he's ethically immutable, but he, you know, the way he works in the world is mutable. I mean, it was all these, and it's the short phrase for that is, theistic mutualism right and we want we want to avoid theistic mutualism and uh and to so 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 in understanding god's decrees correctly excuse me uh that helps us to maintain our doctrine of god no it, that's 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 a great point you know this is this will come out later later on and uh when we get on into the the sacraments and things like that but that that's an allegation that sometimes the reformed will make and, and uh, rightly so against uh, Roman Catholicism and some of its earlier iterations of medieval theology of treating God like a divine vending machine in terms of the sacramental exchange. But like Nick was just saying about and doctrine, not, that's that's not the right word, but the notion, the notion of karma, uh, we run the risk of treating God like a divine vending machine. Put your dollar in, the Coca-Cola pops out. Do this and this will happen to you as if it's a, a tit-for-tat sort of exchange. So it's not just uh, Rome and her sacramental system of put this in and get the grace out one-to-one uh, -one correspondence or one-to-one -one ratio, but uh, there are other ways, even in this more fundamental doctrine of God where people can run the risk of making that kind of error. Those were the good old days when a, a Coke cost a dollar, right? I mean, when's the last time you paid a dollar for a Coke machine? Now, in Aliceville, we used to have these machines before they closed our Piggly Wiggly, and you could get a Fago for like 65 cents, and it was awesome. It's it's tragic that we're old enough now that we are commenting on the staggering uh, <laughs> increase in soft drink prices. Like you know, that's like when our parents like, oh, when I was a kid, a Frankfurt called Frankfurt called it cost like a nickel or something. Like I mean, we're getting up there, guys. You know, I remember when Hershey bar cost a nickel. That's that Seinfeld episode. Yes, uh, the entryway into Wal Mint. <laughs> the entryway into Walmart when I was a kid, you could still get a uh, Walmart brand, the Sam Sam's Choice brand of soda. You could get that for a quarter back when I was a kid. So, you know, Dr. Thunder, uh, not the name brand, just the Sam's brand. You could also get one of those yellow smiley face stickers, too, which I mean, the glory days, right? Uh, Glorious. Perry McCall. Uh, Dr. Thunder is what we're going to refer to Derek Bride as whenever he gets done with that Ph.D. <laughs> 
Well, guys, I know we're winding towards a conclusion, but I, 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 I suppose I, before we totally wrap it up, I thought it was worth exploring just for a moment. Why do y'all think that the Catechism makes the special mention that it does of angels and men? So he, God unchangeably foreordained whatsoever comes to pass in time, especially concerning angels and men. So he's foreordained what's come to pass with mountains and streams and trees and volcanoes and typhoons and everything else, but especially concerning angels and men. Why is that highlighted here in the Catechism? Because our God is the creator and sustainer of all things in heaven and on earth. Mic drop. <laughs> visible and invisible. I think it's kind of riffing on that language. Is that from the Shorter Catechism or the Confession, y'all? Or no, wait, it's the, it's the Creed. Um, the creator of all things visible and well, invisible. And invisible. Remember it's yeah. yep. uh, Nicene or Apostles' yep. Creed. So I think it's demonstrating again that this confession did not drop down from heaven in 1647, but rather it is flowing downstream from the ancient creeds and confessions. This is not a deviation from the true faith. I love what I was listening back to one of the episodes and Nick just said so well, talking about our doctrine of monotheism. We believe in one true God, that what we believe as Reformed Christians is not a departure from, but it is in keeping in step with the faith once we're all delivered to the saints, right? The church that is built upon the foundation of the apostles and their teaching. So, and I think another reason why it says especially concerning angels and men is because God's concern is, I would say, other than his glory, you know, in a second place, is those who bear his image. So men bearing his image. God has more concern for us than he does for the sparrows of the air. That's the logic that he uses when he talks about just consider the flowers of the field and how they enjoy arraignment that was better than Solomon's. Does, does God not care for you more than these? Mm -hmm. So God's eye, sure, is on the sparrow, as we like to sing in that Red Trinity hymnal hymn, but his eye is especially upon his image bearers and his chosen people. And those are usually, especially there, I think is even kind of provocative because people are willing, they might even be willing to go with us for this whole question until, and they'll stop at God being sovereign over angels and men. They'll say, oh, no, no, no. He had to go hands off there. Right. But maybe with a little twinkle in their eye, the divines were saying, no, actually, it's especially with regard to angels and men that God is exercising his sovereignty. It's uh, it's also helpful just to have a, a a nice remembrance here that there is a natural world and a supernatural spiritual realm uh, that we're dealing with within the Christian faith. You know, um, you know, men and angels. Um, it just it just helps us it helps us remember that there are spiritual matters uh, here at play as we understand God and His decrees. You know, I I think this could be reflective of, you know, a debate within the Westminster Assembly that was between uh, the Anglicans in the Assembly and the more Presbyterians over the soulishness of animals. You know, we, we, we all have a sense, our Anglican friends, they have a soft spot. All dogs go to heaven. <laughs> the Presbyterians, only elect dogs go to heaven. So um, could, could be, possibly. Could be, that's right. I, I think also it's touching on the eternality of the souls of men. 
on the eternality of, of angels uh, as opposed to, say, that tree outside my window. Now, I know we're going to live in a new creation for all eternity, and that, and then the new creation is going to reflect this created world to, to a, a great degree. I, I, I get that. But there's an eternality that has created angels, and there's an eternality to the souls and eventually the glorified bodies of men that they have in a different way. And, and this is, I think, maybe hinting at or teasing at what the confession and the catechism will get on into later on about the distinction between elect angels and fallen angels and elect men and fallen men. Um, because there are, as, as, as folks will know, there are fallen angels, those who, those who bought into Satan's deception and agenda and, and fell, uh, fell from splendor. And of course we have our unsaved friends, fallen men, uh, those who don't love the Lord Jesus Christ, those who've not been uh, redeemed who have embraced him by faith. So there's this distinction. So you have all men and all angels, but there's a distinction uh, even within that of fallen men and fallen angels, Fallen men and, and, and elect men, fallen angels and elect angels, and God has a special attention to that matter in his foreordaining and in his decreeing of all things. And I think that's part of what the, the catechism is touching on here as it makes mention of that uh, in, a, in a very succinct way. Yeah, First Timothy 5.21, in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. So we are supernaturalists. We do believe in angels. Uh, we would believe in demons as well. Uh, the inverse, those fallen angels that did not stand the test uh, and fell with Satan. So, yeah, I, I think it's pretty interesting, too, that the divines kind of snap us out of this notion that God is sovereign only over what we can see, but he is sovereign even over what we cannot see, that the present powers of this present evil age, right? The cosmic warfare in which we're engaged, God's sovereign over that too, which provides tremendous comfort and assurance to the Christian uh, in his or her spiritual warfare. You know, guys, we covered ground today. Um, hey, I was going to say real quick, Matt has something really good. He has a really good illustration for angels and predestination. <laughs> Matt, will you help us out with that? Yeah, let's, let's listen in on that. Matt, that is brilliant. We can tell you went to Clemson. It that's might brilliant. be the best thing he said all episode. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> well, guys, we're we're winding towards a conclusion here, but we also want before we do wrap up, we want to uh, highlight a a book that we have to give away. This was actually not the book we were intending to give away with this week's episode, but we'll still have that giveaway later on. But there's another book that uh, one of our guys has in stock. And so uh, Spin wants to give a, a quick description of it. This is a book that many of us have appreciated over the last few years. And so this goes in well with our discussion uh, that we've been having in today's episode. Yeah, I have a book here by Dr. James Dolezal, All That Is In God, subtitle being The Evangelical Theology and the Challenge of Classical Christian Theism. Derek Bright actually used one of those million-dollar words, theological mutualism, where we sort of have this push-pull with God, which is actually not what the Scripture teaches. And so Dr. Dolezal is just, I think, very able at condensing these very big doctrines down into digestible parts for us. And so we've all cut our teeth on this book in recent years, and so we're going to give that away. If you like and share this episode on your social media platforms, we'd really appreciate it. We want to get people in touch with 
uh, this great doctrine of God and all his decrees. So that is the giveaway for today. And we look forward to giving that way in a couple of weeks. So Sean, why don't you close us out? Well, we thank you all for tuning in. We've gone about an hour on this episode, which I don't know if we intended to do that or not, but I think it was fruitful and useful because this is a big question with big concepts and very consequential ideas. Uh, question number 12 of the larger catechism. So I hope it's been an hour well spent. I, sh I, I sure think it's been edifying uh, for our group. I hope it's been edifying to you as you've listened along. And so we're always appreciative of you all listening and the feedback that we get and the communication that we get. And we appreciate your helping us out and spreading the word about this podcast resource by sharing some of these things and entering yourselves to win some of these excellent resource giveaways. And so until next time, we'll look forward to joining you again here at Larger for Life. You have been listening to Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast, and on Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com slash largerforlife. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for Life. Larger for Life.